greetings to everybody on the first great day of the feast. We call the eighth day the last great day. I never really thought about that, but if that's the last great day, that means the days before it were great too. That's just the last one of the great ones. So tomorrow's the second great day, I guess. We And we'll be keeping the last great day of the feast before you know it. It goes by so very, very rapidly, it seems. I'm a little puzzled, not too much, but I got here to the desk, and I had this dinosaur sitting here looking at me, and I wonder if there's a message there somewhere. I think somebody maybe just misplaced it. They meant to put it over there where Nelson is. I'm not, uh, not sure. Anyway, thank you for the dinosaur. Whoever is so nice. Before we get anything to anything else, we do have special music today. The choir is going to sing about the days of Elijah. Uh, this is a beautiful song. We can go ahead and be assembling for that. There is, uh, at the end of it, is a... Uh, a phrase repeated over and over again. In fact, the first time I saw this, it was done by a group of U.S. Marines in a room. There were a lot of them, and it was really inspiring to see. But at the end of it, it, talk, it talks about how there is... Uh, now the words won't come to my mind. Uh, <clears throat> There's no God like Jehovah, is what they say over and over. And then I got to thinking about that yesterday, and no, there is no God but Jehovah. Uh, they say, well, no God like, but there's only one God. Anything else is less than God. So I told them, I think we need to change this to, there is no God but Jehovah. It fits the Scriptures better and fits reality better, so if they can remember to change it. <laughs> I think they can. Thank you. 
I assume you all have a copy of the schedule for the feast by now. I put them in boxes, but may have missed a few, and those coming in from out of town. There's more over here by the offering box if you need one or lose one or whatever. So they're there. Well, these are indeed the days Ezekiel spoke of and Elijah and all the prophets of God back in the Old Testament. And we're coming into a time when our nation is falling apart at the seams. It's sad to see, Jeremiah said, that we would mourn the loss of our nation. We'd do something about it if we could, but we can't. Because our nation has sinned and is sinning before God in every way you can imagine. And I believe judgment has been passed. I believe that that uh, occurred in August of 2017 when that eclipse went across the nation from Oregon to South Carolina at noonday. And Amos said it would be uh, a day of darkness in the middle of the day. And that went over pretty much at noon. Now, others have looked to this. They've also seen that we have other eclipses coming, which are very unusual ones. I gave a sermon on it a couple of weeks ago, or whenever it was. And there's a lot more uh, to be said. I don't want to do it right now, but to grasp that we are in these days, I think we're going to see here in a minute in Scripture, and that what is happening around the world uh, was being heralded by that. And it came at a very critical time in the, na in the nation's history, and it's going to be followed up. Uh, we have another eclipse coming on October 14th, uh, which is both the new moon, an eclipse has to be at a new moon, but it's also on the Sabbath, October 14th. And this one is going to come from Oregon uh, and exit at Corpus Christi, as I said. But it's coming right over southern Utah, the Four Corners area of the United States, and on down into New Mexico, Texas, and then out there. It will not be a total e eclipse. Well... There's different eclipses. A total means the sun is completely covered. An annular means that you see a ring of fire around it. It doesn't quite cover it. It's over it all, but there's a little ring of fire around still showing. And this is an annular that's coming up on October 14th. doesn't have anything to do with annually or every year, but it's a term they use when it shows that ring of fire. But... Uh, it will be a, a complete eclipse, let's put it that way. Uh, on the, we'll be on the edge of it. Parawan will actually have uh, the complete eclipse. Cedar City's got 94%. I think I looked at Enoch, and it's about 94 to 96, somewhere right in there. And uh, Parawan is almost directly in the path uh, east to west of Parowan, the same uh, latitude. So, uh, Jerusalem will be right there 
either in or almost in, probably 98, 99% of it. Uh, and I want to be there for that uh, and see that. Now, down here, it might be 90% or plus, somewhere right around there. But I'd like to be up there for that and giving some serious thought to maybe even having a Sabbath service at the site of the True Jerusalem uh, on October 14th. If you have any comments about that, you have time to mention something to me, but uh, we could possibly go up. Uh, the thing starts about 10 o'clock. Uh, you might see a little bit of stuff before that in the morning, and it's over by 10.30. 10.28 is when it comes over Parowan or thereabouts. Uh, so we'd have to be up early enough. And then maybe if we did it at the Eye of Jerusalem, uh, there where you can get up and park to the left of the Eye, uh, we could go there, take tables with us, and have a picnic service there even, or talk about everything uh, having to do with this. Because I think it's going to be very important. There's too much going on for it to be coincidence. Now, I have a series prepared for this feast, but before we get into that per se, let's go to Luke 21. Uh, this is talking about the end of the age and things that will be occurring. And before we go into the promised land, now I'm going to get into that in a very serious way. Uh, during this feast, but right now we're poised to go in, just as Israel was poised after 40 years of wandering in the desert, and all the older people who had rebelled had to die first, and the younger people were going to go in, save Caleb and Joshua, who had been faithful all the way through. And even Moses striking the rock precluded him from going in, and he made a point of that again in Deuteronomy. We have to be careful what we say and what we do before God because it can bring penalties. And it even did on the one he called his friend, Moses, a friend of God. And he had spoken eye to eye with Christ himself when he had visited on the plain of Mar and maybe other times. And yet he was penalized because he had a fit of temper there because of the rebellion of Israel. So even he had some penalty. He's going to be in the kingdom of God and have a very high office. But it was a temporary physical penalty that God gave. And Israel needed that to show that any kind of rebellion, however small as his was, just a little bit of temper and uh, impatience maybe, uh, where he struck it instead of just speaking. But it's an example for us to be very careful about every word of God and all he says and not to minimize any of it. In fact, there's a very strong warning at the end of the book of Revelation about removing or adding to anything that God wrote in the book. That's also mentioned even in Deuteronomy, that they weren't to leave any words out that Moses spoke. So, we have to be very aware of that. Let's go to Luke 21 then before getting into it, because this sets the tone. The disciples had asked him, as they did in Matthew 24, 
what would be the sign of his coming in the end of this age. So they were speaking, even though they weren't aware yet, really, that he was not coming back in their lifetimes, they still had asked the question, what's the sign of the end and of your return? And that's the question that he answered, whether they understood when it would be or not. That was immaterial. He wanted it laid out there in his words to show us upon whom the ends of the world are come what would be happening just before that occurred. And that's the message he got across to the disciples. Now we can see from the things they wrote after that, even in the scriptures, that they didn't expect it to be, or they expected it to be in their lifetimes at first. They kind of got over that. But that's what they expected. So they didn't get the full message here. The full message was for whom? You and me. It's here upon whom the ends of the age have come. Now, if that be the case, we should be able to understand what Christ says here in the light of what's going on in the world today, right? If so, it doesn't mean anything. We might as well go on our way, eat, drink, and be merry, and live our lives out and die. So there's a message here. Uh, verse 5 in Luke 21, And as some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with goodly stones and gifts, he said, As for these things which you behold, the days will come in the which there shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now that temple that was there physically that they were looking at and leaning against was torn down about 70 A.D. And there's not one stone left upon another on it. Now, the Jews don't believe this. They believe that in that Jerusalem in the Middle East, the wall of stone that is there was the wall of the one remaining wall of the temple. Well, there's a lot of rocks stacked up there still. A lot of stones on top of one another. I was there. I saw them. I, in fact, I even wrote out a little note and put it between some of the rocks that this is not the wall of the temple. I imagine some devout Jew got that and had a laugh at it or whatever. But uh, I do things like that. But it's still there. I saw it. But it's not the temple. Now, it's come out recently. I don't know just when, but I've seen that it's actually a wall left of a Roman fort or garrison is what it apparently is. But I know it's not the stones of the temple that Christ was leaning on because there wouldn't be any left. So there can't be. So they go and weep and wail <laughs> for the Romans to come save them, if you put it in that context. It's a Roman wall, not God's temple. Anyway, he said they would be thrown down. And they asked him, saying, Master, but when shall these things be, and what sign will there be when these things shall come to pass? Now, they were looking for a sign that would come that show <clears throat> when it would come to pass. Now, he answers about a future temple. 
Now, the one that was destroyed in 70 A.D. was the last one that was in some way or form a, let's say, a brother or a son to the Solomon Temple, would have been Herod's Temple, which had been built back and then was destroyed and has not been built back since. So it had to be referring to something in the future. Now, what temple did he build? He built another one right after that, starting in, on Pentecost. And we say 31 A.D. I'm going to research that. The scholars say that there's about a seven-year gap there from 27 A.D. to 34 A.D., 35 or 6 even, uh, to date these things. But he may not have been crucified in 31 A.D. Now, that has been the date from scholars that the church through the decades here at the end has accepted. I want to look into that carefully and see, because they're looking at it specifically and only from the standpoint of the Arab Jerusalem that has been built in the Middle East. The Arabs are proud to have built it. They claim it is still theirs. And the Jews just simply adopted it. And I believe that that is the case. However... When they start figuring these things, we know that the Sabbath was a high day uh, when Christ died. Uh, that would have been on a Wednesday because he said he would be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights, 72 hours. So a Friday crucifixion is simply out of the picture, as the Protestants believe. They count part of Friday, Saturday, and a little bit of Sunday, not much of it. Uh, so that's not three days and three nights, specifically as Jonah was in the belly of the fish. So it couldn't have been a Friday uh, crucifixion. So the Jews, so we picked out from this range that the scholars use, 31 A.D., because there was a Wednesday Passover. Uh, and it's clear in the New Testament scriptures that the Jews were keeping it on the 15th, one day later than Christ and the disciples did. And the Jews this year are keeping it a day later than the sun or the moon tells them to keep it. Uh, it's delayed one day. So they're still keeping the 15th, uh, which is incorrect according to the heavenly calendar in scripture. But nonetheless... <coughs> When I was looking at some things about this, this eclipse that we're seeing here in this country, it occurred to me that there was darkness at the time that Christ was crucified. The land went dark during the day, uh, and some graves were open. There was an earthquake as well. Now, were these a one thing, time thing that God did out of the blue just to signify his death? Or was it something he planned way before in terms of an eclipse? That may have been the case. That being said, that's the wrong location on earth, and any eclipse that was there at that time would mean nothing in terms of Christ's crucifixion, because he was crucified over here, and an eclipse here would be what counted, not one over there. So, 
I want to research that, and it may be quite a chore. You might help me on it. If we can find record uh, of when eclipses occurred back then here. I saw one site that said that somebody had gone through and calculated it uh, for eclipses 5,000 years in the past and 3,000 in the future from when he did it, which has been, I think, fairly recently. I don't know whether it was 1800s, 1900s, when it's been, when it was. I didn't catch that. Uh, but apparently, that was done, and they can predict these things and calculate them years ahead, just like they knew the 2017 eclipse was coming. They knew this 2014 one was coming. They know the one's coming on April 8th that will form the Alpha and Omega in the heavens. So they knew about that, and we're ready for the second stroke of it a week after the feast. But it would be interesting to see if they calculated any eclipses in this part of the world occurring at that time when Christ was crucified, and we might be able to nail the year down better. They've concluded, because of the eclipses over there, that it actually happened in 20, or in 33 A.D. instead of 31, uh, based on the heavens. So, who knows for sure? And that could affect our calculations about when the 2,000 or 6,000 years is up, and it might be a couple of years later than what we have always thought. Uh, if indeed it was in 33 or 34 A.D. instead of 31. Now, I'm not saying that it's not 31 A.D. It may very well be. But it needs to be researched some more to see what actually occurred in the heavens. Is we're going to see some things here in just a moment. Uh, verse 70 had said, or they had said, When will these things come to pass and what sign? So they wanted a sign of some kind. He says, Take heed that you be not deceived, for many will come in my name, name saying, I am Christ, in the time that draws near. Go you not therefore after them. Now that's been proclaimed since he said this, even during their lifetimes, by people who claimed to be Christ or that he was coming soon, and it didn't happen. It's been proclaimed that there have been people go out and sit on hillsides here and there thinking that the time had come and that he was coming then. I mean, even our neighbors over here in Colorado City and Hilldale, at one time back in their history since, since 1953, I don't know what year, they had decided it was time to come and they all went out and sat on a hill waiting. And then they went home and they're still waiting. So, he said, be careful, don't swallow the wrong bait, would be the thought. Now, we're all looking for the end. People have been ever since Christ's day. And he said that there would be signs he would give. Those are the ones we're to watch. So we can guess at this and postulate that, but... What are we to be watching for? And that's where we go to Matthew 24 and Luke 21 to find some answers. Right here in this context. 
Verse 9, But when you shall hear of wars and commotions, be not terrified. For these things must first come to pass, but the end is not by and by. It's still a little while when you start seeing these things beginning to happen. And we've been seeing them for some time now. Uh, there's continual war all over the earth. Small wars, bigger wars. Uh, we've had World War One and World War Two, but it's been some time, not yet, still by and by, whatever by and by means. It's kind of an open-ended thing. There's a song the Protestant sings, in the sweet by and by. Well, they're thinking of some time in the future when Christ returns in the sweet by and by. It's in here, but somebody took a song from it. But that doesn't tell you when. You just sing it in the sweet by and by. It'll be a sweet time whenever. So you're going to see these things starting to happen. Then he said to them, Nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. It's going to increase, in other words. You're going to hear about wars and rumors of wars, as Matthew put it. And then it is going to intensify, where there's more and more and more of it. Not only nations warring, as we have them warring all over the world today, uh, but great earthquakes shall be in different places, and famines and pestilences, and fearful sights, and great signs shall there be from heaven. Now, if you've been watching uh, an earthquake channel or uh, website or whatever, you find that there have been greatly increasing earthquakes of late. The last two, three, four, five years, it's increasing significantly. More earthquakes, more volcanoes going off. These things have increased pretty rapidly here in the last few years. Now we're beginning, we've seen some famines in parts of Africa, parts of Asia, here and there. But now they're increasing a great deal. And they're destroying farms and ranches and food processing plants are blowing up all over the earth. Oil refineries are blowing up. Uh, politically, they're shutting down oil in Arabia and Russia and so on. And in the United States, Biden's shutting off the oil from Alaska. How are you going to fight the next big war without oil? We also have stopped all of our uranium processing plants, we don't produce it anymore. There was a big deal about uranium mines in the 50s, and I think there's still one out here on the Arizona Strip, unless it's been shut down recently. Uh, but all the processing plants are gone now in this nation. And Russia has shut off the supply of uranium. We were buying it from Russia, of all places. And now they've shut that off, saying they can't get insurance on sending uranium which is a political excuse, basically. So, how are you going to fight a nuclear world war if you don't have the things needed to do it? And the things that we need to make war material, including our jet airplanes and so on, uh, the rare earths are coming from China. And our parts for our fighter planes are made in China. We can't even fix our own planes. We don't have anything to produce the parts. 
when they shut that off, where are we? So we're seeing these things happening, and we're going to see a great deal of famine and pestilence, because Ezekiel 5 says a third of us will die of famine and pestilence, a third by the sword, and a third will be taken into captivity. And then with his laying on his side 430 years, there in Ezekiel 5, and it says, a day for a year, after 430 years it will happen. And then he says, not immediately. And you go on and read through, and about 12, 13 times, he says, it is come, it is near, it's about to happen, it is come. It won't be like the echoing of the hills, long time away still, but that it's soon after the 430 years. We have been here from the Roanoke Colony until 2017, 430 years. And we screwed it up royally, and we're a nation not serving God, and that eclipse across the nation, signifying judgment of this nation occurred right after the Roanoke 414, I can't say it, 430 years. That ended in July of 2017, and that eclipse came across the, across the whole nation at noon and made it dark a month later. Now, I took that as significant at the time and spoke of it, of it. But I didn't know about this one coming up and the next one that are going to make an Alpha and Omega right across the middle of this nation. So, let's move on here. Earthquakes, famines, pestilences, the things that Ezekiel speaks of. Jeremiah speaks of the same things, chapter 29 and 30, occurring in this nation. And great signs shall there be from heaven. So included in the things that we are to watch for will be signs in the heavens. He explains that a little more further down where he says signs, uh, let's see. Well, where is it? My Oh, there shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars and upon the earth distress of nations. So he explains that some of this is not going to just be famine and pestilence and war on earth, but signs in the heavens are part of what will be seen before he returns. I think we've seen one in that 2017 eclipse. And now it is going to be accompanied by two more, which are going to be unmistakable signs in the heavens that come together, the three of them, to form an Alpha and Omega right across the middle of America. That's signs in the heavens. And God said they'd be there when we're getting close. So not only does he warn us in this book about the things that will be coming, he's also giving us a visible sign to those who have eyes to see and ears to hear that this is very near. And we've seen the first one about a little over six years ago, and the third one that will make the Omega, Alpha and Omega complete is on the first day of the first month of the new year in God's calendar on April 4th. 
And that will, I mean April 8th, that will be uh, seven years from when the first sign. That's a, God, a number God uses, seven. So he knew when the time would come. And the things that we have seen happening since 2017 are an intensification of what we're reading about right here. Famine and earthquake. We've seen even supplies in America get a little thin on shelves at places, and it's going to get worse, and the cost of food is getting higher and higher by the day and the week and the month. But before all these, they shall lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and into prisons, being brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. That has started in to a degree in America already. Uh, they are kicking kids out of school here and there sporadically for standing up for God or the nation or patriotism or Christianity in any form. And they are praising and funding the raising of Muslim temples and so on in contrast. So, Christianity is on its way out and they're already starting the persecution with things that politicians say here and there if you're paying attention. Uh, now, all of these things will intensify. It hasn't gotten right out in the open yet very much, but they are putting some pastors in prison for speaking up for Christ. It's already happening here and there. Not much, but a little bit. It'll get worse. Verse 14, Settle it therefore in your hearts, not to meditate before what you shall answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which, shall, which all your adversaries shall not be able to gainsay nor resist. Now they could deny, but they can't give you an answer for what you have to say. Now that's like these three eclipses going on. I can show you in this book, and have a little bit and will more, that this is too much to be coincidence. I ran it across a couple of people that I know who aren't with us, and told them about the Alpha and the Omega, and they said, because uh, they still think it's in the Middle East. I says, uh, why is that over America? It's in ancient Hebrew, Alpha and Omega, over America. Why isn't it over Israel in the Middle East? Well, because this nation really is Babylon. And I says, yeah, it may be under a government of Babylon, but we're Israelites. And even he admits that we're Ephraim under the rule of Babylon. But they're not about to give up the Middle East. Now, it's here, it's over Israel, and if you read the scripture there in, in uh, Amos 8, before and after and during that chapter, it talks about Israel. And the heavenly sign that God speaks of comes over Israel. And since it came here, this is Israel. Just one more proof. This next one's coming right over the promised land. 
started in Oregon, where Herbert Armstrong began, both of them, and come over different parts of the country, which are also significant, as I think I said a little bit about. So I think this one to watch is very important. It's one of the heavenly signs, I believe, I may be proven wrong, but there's more here than can be coincidence, especially where they go and what they do. And Jeremiah says that it is the time of the beginning of Jacob's trouble. And this nation is getting more and more seriously in trouble every day. Our economy is about to collapse. Inflation is going nutso. The Russians are getting ready to attack us, and we're pushing them to do it very hard in the Ukraine. And at some point, they're going to do it. But I don't worry about them coming over and doing a nuclear bombing of us, because, he says, a third will die of famine and pestilence. That's not a nuclear bomb, necessarily. A third go into captivity, taken away, and a third die by the sword, or militarily. So, nuclear bombs don't do it that way. But Jeremiah 50, 51 tell us that our leaders will shake hands with those who are coming to destroy us. They'll make a deal with them. Hasn't the Biden administration, and back to Clinton and maybe even before, all of them making deals with the Chinese? And probably now with the Russians? So that we will use up all the weapons, our ammo, and all those things in a Ukrainian war, which means nothing to us, and then they can just march in here and take over because there's nothing left to defend ourselves with. That is in process right now today. Germany, Britain, the United States are running out of war materials. And our F-35s, our best, fanciest jets, they can barely keep in the air. Most of them are on the ground because they don't have parts and can't get them fixed. Most of them. Worthless. Trillion dollars worth of jet airplanes sitting on the runway. We're going to be a cakewalk. It's going to be easy to come in and take over. So, He says, some of you will be put to death, and we know that in this coming tribulation, 90% of what was the church is going to be put to death in martyrdom. Only 10% are going to escape and do the finished work of God. You'll be hated of all men for my name's sake. That means you're known of all men, doesn't it? If you're hated of all men on earth, that means they all know about you. There's going to be a little light coming from Jerusalem and Zion. Not much, but God said He'll set a little light on Mount Zion and Mount Ephraim to the world. So the eclipse, the full eclipse, is coming with Jerusalem, the original site, just at the edge of it and maybe a little light showing. I think that's symbolic. That's the only place there's going to be any light coming around the world is from Jerusalem, Zion, and the Promised Land. Specifically, Zion, once what Luke's about to say occurs. Well, you shall see true Jerusalem, 
compassed with armies, you know that the desolation thereof is near. Then you who are in Judea, flee to the mountains, and let them which are in the midst of it depart out, and let them that are in the countries enter therein too. Wherever you are, you better get to Zion in a hurry. And all the things that are written can be then fulfilled. Terrible times. Woe to you if you're with child or nursing a baby. Because it's going to be a time of great distress and wrath upon this people. That's Judah and Israel, God's people. They'll fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles shall be fulfilled. We can go other places, Revelation, and see that that time of the Gentiles is 42 months. That's the three and a half years, 42 months, the two witnesses will be preaching around the world. And the whole world is going to know who they are because they're going to administer plagues, blood, uh, water will be turned to blood. The things that happened in ancient Mithraim or Egypt are going to happen all again. And they will be hated of all nations, believe it. Because they will not be looked upon as bringing news of a better world that they could have if they would just repent. Instead, they're going to hate them for bringing plagues because they don't repent. God was prepared to bring great plagues and destruction on Nineveh. But because of Jonah's warning, they did repent, and God withdrew that punishment He was going to give. They went right back into sin shortly thereafter, and God went ahead and used them to destroy Israel. But that's what Jonah was so upset about. He says, I know you've said... Assyria is going to come and destroy us. And if they repent, uh, if they repent, then you won't remove the destruction that will come on them for destroying us. So he didn't want all that to happen. didn't want them to repent. He wanted God to just go ahead and wipe them out instead of Israel. But that's not the way it works. But the world is not going to repent like Nineveh did. They're going to hate Christ, they're already coming openly with Lucifer worship and Satan worship. Hollywood just says it right out right now. A lot of the people there. And they're saying it right out in Washington. Senators, Congress people. They're outright Satan worshipers. And a lot of them now are beginning to admit it. It's just coming right out in the open. So this is getting very near. We're soon to be attacked by Russia and a coalition of nations. Won't be long. Because the things that Christ is talking of are about to happen. Now, where do we go from there? We see from Luke 21 and Matthew 24, the signs that are coming, and heavenly signs are part of it, and I think we saw one in 17, and we're about to see another one a week after the feast. It's coming. Scheduled. These are going to begin to mean more and more. These last two are pretty close together. October and April. The other one was over six years now since it happened. 
So the events are getting closer, and the signs are getting closer. So that means, as we've come to understand, that the punishment of the church... Now, there's another example of not one stone left upon another at the end. God built... Christ built the temple. Beginning in Acts there, Acts 2 and 31 or whatever year it was in that day. And within 70 years, there wasn't one stone left upon another. The apostles had all been martyred. Only John remained. He was the only one who was not martyred. And they apparently put him in a tub of boiling oil, and it didn't hurt him. And at least that's their tradition. It's not in the Scripture like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But it may have happened. But as far as the church was concerned, the building blocks, the apostles, had all been knocked down. And it had been flattened. There wasn't anything left. And that has happened here at the end as well with the church, where it has all been spewed out of Christ's mouth, and now it's all blown apart, whether you call it spittle from Christ's mouth as spewing and vomit, or whether you call it stones being scattered, it's all been pretty much scattered. There's not much left here or there. Just little pockets of people still trying to obey God and keep His Sabbath and holy days. And not much more than that. It's pretty well taken care of. And the church worldwide is dead. It's gone. It doesn't even exist anymore by name or by people. And for the end time, that's what Christ was prophesying would happen. And it has. So what we are looking at now is the end of that destruction of the church and Christ beginning to put it back together with the two witnesses and the faithful remnant who are going to come to Zion and Jerusalem to build the temple, to build the walls of Jerusalem. And 70 weeks from when that starts, the, tem- the temple will be desecrated by the beast and the false prophet. And when you see those armies gathering to desecrate it is when you flee to Zion, flee to the mountains, which we read. Mountains of Judea, and that's right over here. So, the time of the rebuilding of the church is almost here. The time of the destruction of our nation is almost here. The rebuilding comes during the period of Jacob's trouble, Jeremiah 30. Jeremiah puts them right together. So, while the rest of our nation is poised to go into famine, pestilence, military takeover, and captivity, the few who will obey God are being prepared to go up as a witness against the world and do the end-time work of the church. So, you are poised at this point at the edge of Canaan. Just as Israel was poised at the border to go into the promised land, so are we. I think it's significant that this little group, which isn't the remnant, that's 10% of what was. All we are is a preparation crew to make a place prepared for them to begin to come. And the scripture in Isaiah 54 says it won't be big enough. They'll want more room. 
Zechariah 2 says it'll be Jerusalem will be built as towns without walls. No, no need for protection or defense because Christ will be a wall of fire around them and that they'll be protected from the weather there in Isaiah. So he's going to take care of and he says those towns of Jerusalem will have much men and cattle. So we'll have food. He says they're to come and have wine and milk without money. He's going to provide everything that is needed. So it's like going back into the Garden of Eden. He says it'll be as the Garden of Eden in Isaiah 55. Like the Garden of Eden. He is going to make a place so beautiful out in the southwest U.S. wilderness that will be remindful of Eden. And that's what the remnant church and the two witnesses can pronounce to the world. You're being cursed under the Satan and the beast and the false prophet because you won't obey the only Jehovah. But these people, a few, are being blessed because they are obeying Him and they have everything they need. They have security and protection and food and water and no war because they're obeying God. Now, what a testimony to send to the whole world and then be hated by all of them for it. What a picture. But you and I today, and that's where I want to go from here, is our nation is facing Jacob's trouble. And it's quickly coming upon us, day by day now. More and more trouble and it's going to climax with famine and pestilence, war, and captivity. But you are poised to go into the land of Canaan. Now this area right here, where we're sitting today, is sitting right outside, and if you go out and look, you can see what they today call the Canaan Mountains. That's the name of this mountain range right here, between here and Hurricane the Canaan Mountains. We're sitting right on the outside of them, are we not? We're not inside them. We're not in Zion. We're not up in Jerusalem. Could have been. But God didn't want that yet. We're going to have to move there to get inside Canaan. So, this may not have been the mountains that were originally called Canaan. I don't know. But it's certainly symbolic here at the end that we would be right outside the Canaan Mountains looking into the promised land. Now, we can drive there. We can go there. But we can't go live there yet. That'll come. And this is going to happen soon. We've already seen a heavenly sign. We're about to see another one in about a little over two weeks. So what do we need to be doing? If this is imminent, the nation's going down and we're coming up finally. It's been 38 years since Herbert Armstrong died, if you can believe it. That's too shy of 40. We've been wandering in a wilderness here for quite some time uh, since he died, a spiritual wilderness. And that 40 may turn out to be very, very significant before this is all said and done. 
2024, I, I said 38, 2024 will be 38 years. He died in January of 86. So almost 38 years ago now. And we have some events that have to occur and temple to be built. And it could be 40 years by the time that's all done and we go to a place of safety in Zion. could easily be 40 years. Just building the temple itself, is I mean Jerusalem itself, is 70 weeks. And from the time given to build it, Daniel 9, it's 70 weeks until the desolation of the temple occurs. So, that puts us about 40 years before we're delivered to Zion, doesn't it? Out of this world. That may have some significance. We shall see. But then, if the world, the nation, Jacob's trouble is coming down and we're coming up, what do we need to be doing? Preparing for that. Getting ready for God's blessing to return. Getting ready to cause Him to smile on us again. He's been frowning on us now and turned His face from us for nearly four decades. Herbert Armstrong died before some of you here were even born. And yet, from what he taught and we have learned since, you still understand the truth because it's been passed on. But not very many do. But there are enough out there that this generation shall not pass away until these things happen. And the generation that saw that and saw it at its best is dying rapidly. The dinosaur. That's what we are. And there won't be many left who can look at the latter former temple and say the latter is better. This generation that saw that, that's the one he's talking about in Matthew 24 and Luke 21. It will not die out. So, that takes us back to Moses. And that's where we're going to go. Deuteronomy, by tradition of the Jews, was to be read on the Feast of Tabernacles, they call it Sukkoth, every seven years. That was a Jewish tradition. And I started that one year, and I couldn't remember how far back it was, so I asked Nelson to check the tapes and go back. And at first he called me back and said, uh, I'd done it in 2007, I think he said, seven or nine. And... Uh, then he kept looking and called back shortly thereafter and said, I'd done it in 2013 again. So, it's been ten years. Most of you weren't around here ten years ago and didn't hear it. <laughs> That's how time goes by. Jocelyn might go back that far, uh, but not very many. Dorothy might. Uh, close to that, anyway. Um, but you don't remember much of what I said, and I don't either. But the point is, the book of Deuteronomy was written by Moses. He wrote the first five of the books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So he was a major prophet of God. He's called a prophet in Scripture. We don't think of, of him in the same way we do Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, I guess. But he actually wrote more of the Bible than any of them. Five books. And Deuteronomy was the last one he wrote. And it had to do with 
preparing to go into the promised land. He gives a brief history of the things that they had gone through as they wandered through the desert for 40 years, through their rebellions and various things, and God's blessings and some things that had happened. And he is, in the whole book, preparing them to go into the promised land. And what I've been saying up to this point is that's what he's doing with you and me. is getting us ready to go into the land that he promised us in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. It's the same land, physically, geographically, that he promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and so on. But it's also the uh, fulfillment of those scriptures in Isaiah and so on that shows that it will be a fully productive desert blooming like a rose. So those prophecies are attached to it after Moses got done talking about the original promised land. But Moses took it further than that as a prophet, and there is mention of the latter days and what would happen to Israel at the end of the age. So he spoke not only of them about to go into the promised land, but of going into the promised land, the millennium, at the end of the age and what would happen to Israel in the meantime. So, Deuteronomy is a beautiful book to review for us what Israel went through, the mistakes they made, even the mistake Moses made, so that we do not repeat those, and we already have to a great degree in the church here at the end, and have been scattered as their carcasses were scattered in the desert. So, we read Deuteronomy a long time ago and didn't pay much attention Now it's time to pay attention because these same things are happening to all Israel and the deliverance and going into the promised land is about to happen for 10% of what's left of the church. So let's dive into Deuteronomy with that in mind and with that background and understand this Old Testament book in that light. Now, this book also summarizes the law in the Old Testament, preparing to go into the land. And that phrase, the land, or preparing for our inheritance, is mentioned 150 times in this short book. So it's very clear that he's talking about the land of promise that they were to go into and that we are to go back into, back to the true Jerusalem. Some still argue that that has to be the Jerusalem in the Middle East. It has never been desolate since the Arabs built it. It's never laid waste. And yet you and I have looked at, and I can go back and show you right now, four or five places where it says that Jerusalem would be desolate for many generations. No one would live there. Well, that's not happened since that city was built over there by the Arabs. The true one in the land of Ephraim, and Jeremiah talks about it being in the land of Ephraim, 
is right out here, an hour's drive away or a little bit over. That's where it is. And they're not going to recognize it. But that hill over there doesn't have anybody living on it right now. It hasn't for a long, long time. So what fills Scripture and what does not fulfill Scripture? That's what you have to ask yourself. Because it seems strange, even to me, once in a while, that it could be here and not there. Because your mind was trained that way for all those years, and then suddenly you've got to shift gears and say, wait a minute. What does the book say about the history of Jerusalem? This is God-breathed, and it says it was desolate for many generations. And it has been. And the one who finally knocked it flat said, I'm going to make it so you couldn't recognize it was ever a city. And that's the way it is today. So we're preparing. Let's get into the book of Deuteronomy then. I don't know if I'll make it through it all uh, during this feast, but we're going to get started. These be the words which Moses spoke to all Israel on this side Jordan in the wilderness, in the plain over against the Red Sea between Paran and Tophel, and Laban and Hazaroth in Dizabab, or Hab. I don't have a map that he might have had in that day. We don't know where those places were uh, exactly. I do believe God has some maps buried, and I think I know where, uh, that are going to show up, and they're going to show us where all these places literally were. Most of the places, the cities and everything that are identified as biblical cities in that little nation of Israel over there, were named that about 325 by Constantine's mother, who went to that area on a two-week trip and named all those places. How do you cover it all in two weeks and you have these old ruins and you're able to put a name, a biblical name, on all of them in two weeks. The archaeologists are still scratching around trying to find something that shows the Temple of Solomon and David's reign. And they haven't found it yet. Now that's a lot of people with a lot of picks and shovels, and a lot of people with a lot of understanding and knowledge, and they've been digging around over there for hundreds of years and haven't been able to identify anything as being biblical. They found pig bones here and there, which they say must have been the Philistines, because Israel didn't eat pigs. And they found things. But Israel wasn't there until taken into captivity from here. They were into North Africa and through the Middle East and all through, eventually, the Mediterranean in captivity. Because God said he would take them into captivity by ship into Deuteronomy, where we'll be sooner or later here. And then they went from there to Western Europe, and God let them come back here 430 years ago, 431 now. 
So that's the history, the true history of this nation and the Israelite people who now is, inhabit this land. The Navajos, our neighbors here, huge reservation. The women of the Navajo tribe have Israelite genes in their DNA from way back, not just from the last hundred years. Where did that come from? Israel was here. They intermarried with the Gentiles who were here. And they produced a brown race that we call Indians today. You mix black with white or black with yellow, and you get brown. There were only three races, yellow, white, and black. You mix any combination of those three, and you get brown. We have a lot of brown people in the world today. And that's where they came from, was those three races. We're all humans, all God's creation. God made the races. There's nothing wrong with any one race. God made them all. He had a purpose in that. We don't always understand all of His purposes, but He certainly had a purpose in that because He did it. And we, coming back, were the original Israelites. But we weren't the original ones here. After they had resettled after the ark over in Mesopotamia, that's where Abraham was. He had to leave his family and go find a city that God had for him. And when he got there, he found Canaanites there. So black people had come here before Abraham even got here. And then he, his people intermarried with the Canaanites and produced a whole lot of brown people. And Asians were here as well and intermarried. And that's why you have Asian DNA. It all goes back. This is where it was. And this is where it shall be. We're going to read some, de some definitions in a little bit. Not today, obviously of the promised land and what it looked like. And it fits here, but it doesn't fit over in the Middle East. Now, I'm going through a lot, but we're poised today to go into that land, and we're on the edge of it, that was the promised land. We're just not to the center part of it yet, where Jerusalem and Zion are, but we're right at the edge, because I believe it stretched from the Colorado River to about Provo, the Salt Lake. Salt Lake used to be a lot bigger than it is today. And that's the dimensions that are given in the Bible. And those dimensions don't fit Israel over there at all. The dimensions he gives for the size of the Promised Land fit from barely into Nevada, the area of the Great Basin, which was sea, over east of us, a ways east of Bryce Canyon toward Hanksville, where there was another sea. And that's recognized as such. And there's signs around that say it. <clears throat> but that's where the dimensions that he gives back here in the book are. Great Basin in Nevada to kind of the eastern edge of Utah. And from the... Uh, the turbulent waters of the 
I can't say it exactly, the turbulent waters of the Colorado River, which may have been the ancient Euphrates. But the rivers of strife is what the Scripture calls it. So those rapids of the Colorado River is where the Promised Land started, rivers of strife to the sea on the north side of Utah. So Colorado River to Great Salt Lake was the original Promised Land. Now you fit an area that size with Jerusalem in it in the Middle East, and it goes way out in the Mediterranean Sea, it goes way over into Arabia, it goes way down into Africa, and up north, uh, way beyond that little country. It's not near as big as the original promised land. It's pretty small. So, even the dimensions say it can't be over there. Half of it has been in the water. Half of it in the sand. <laughs> and not much else. Well, before we really dive into this then, since I've taken the whole time to lay the background, uh, let's get into it in Deuteronomy tomorrow.